What is up, everyone? And welcome to the Athlete Blueprint Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. So for, t- for this week's episode, we're going to be doing something a little bit different than what we normally do. Normally, the episodes are interview style, long format, ranging between 40 to 40 minutes to about an hour. But every now and then, we like to do deep dives here at the Athlete Blueprint Podcast on certain topics that are very interesting or that I feel need to be illuminated a little bit more. In our last deep dive, we covered on episode six, my ACL journey, my specific experience with that particular injury, and then how we can introduce some ecological concepts to return to play programs. For today, we're going to be talking about jump training myths. So out here in the sports performance world, this is the time of year when volleyball club season picks up, particularly for the, for the girls. Guys, this has been going on for a little while. And now that it's picking up for us over here at Ignite, we do work with a lot of volleyball players. Most of them have one common goal, increase the vertical. Obviously, there's other goals that they, they want to improve, but for the most part, you could run that goal and, and ask you know 10 volleyball players, hey, would you like a higher vertical? And they're all going to say, absolutely. So it is something that is very important to address, and it's part of what we do every day at Ignite. However, I do feel like with the goal that's so prevalent in the demand for, for increasing uh, your vertical, there are some things that we need to be wary of, whether you're a parent, a coach, or an athlete listening to this podcast. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, here's a challenge for you. Do a quick Google search on how to increase your vertical and see what comes up. I'm pretty sure you're going to have well over a million articles, videos, or blog posts on how to do such. The thing is, it's hard to decipher which information is correct, which information is best for you. So I'm here to hopefully give you a little bit more insight so you can make the most informed decision today. So the first myth that I want to discuss with you guys today is going to be training volume. So there is a prevailing thought that more is better, just not even within training, but within our culture, right? More is better. The harder I work, the more work I put in, the more output I get. And that's not always the case. And let me explain. So in particular with jump training, we have to consider several factors when it comes to prescribing volume. And and for those that don't know what I'm talking about, I'm basically saying the number of reps that an athlete does in a jump training session. Part of the problem is that the volume tends to be really, really high in most jump training programs. Now, in a vacuum, that might be great, right? Maybe you do 20 reps instead of 10, therefore you yield a higher output. But we have to remember sports are not played in a vacuum and athletes don't train in a vacuum. We have to consider what we like to call the global load that each athlete has onto them. Let me explain. So let's take the position of an outside hitter in volleyball. They're practicing a club two to three times a week. They're going to be jumping countless number of times during that, during that practice. Let's say it's a two-hour practice arbitrarily, let's just say they jump 100 times. And I think that's a realistic number if you were to watch a volleyball practice. And I encourage you guys, if you do work with volleyball players, if you haven't watched practice or games, you absolutely need to. Uh, so, so they might be getting those reps in in their sport, right? Then let's say practice is Monday. They come Tuesday and the coach has a jump training session with a total volume of 60 jumps. Well, that's a lot considering they just had an intense practice the day before. Not only that, they've got a tournament coming up this week, this weekend, right on Friday or Saturday, maybe a two or three day. So as a coach, you have to consider that. And too often, we don't always consider as an industry, we consider these things at separate silos rather than one 
comprehensive system that is taxing the athlete over an extended period of time. So in a perfect world, you know, as a, as a physical preparation coach, whatever you do with your athletes, you're trying to increase your vertical or increase their vertical. Rather, you would be able to do everything you'd want to do every time in a perfect ideal scenario. But that's not the case, particularly with high school, middle school athletes, especially when we get into the high school ranges, these girls are more than likely going to be doing practice, some type of pre-practice or post-practice conditioning that also likely involves an insane amount of jumps. They're going to be playing. They're going to have privates. Let's not forget the the mental stress and the physical stress that comes with, with all that. So we have to consider what is going to be best for, for, for the athlete in the long run. Our philosophy over here at Ignite is to never be the straw that breaks the camel's back. What I mean by that is I don't want to be the one that puts too much stress in that system to then hinder that athlete's ability to gain progress long term. So while we might be sacrificing maybe a sharp increase uh, in performance and then a sharp decrease, we want gradual progressions over time. And that's the way we approach it when it comes to exercise volume. The other issue that we have with volume is going to be understanding really what is the the purpose or what is the intention of why I'm prescribing these exercises or this these number of reps. So I think it's largely understood that, or at least it should be, that let's just take sprinting. With sprinting, what is the best way to get faster? By sprinting, right? Pretty obvious. If I'm going to be doing anything, if I'm going to be doing Olympic weightlifting, what's the best way to me, for me to get better at Olympic weightlifting? By lifting weights, right? Same thing when it comes to jumping. Really, at the end of the day, we want our athletes to, at least we do over at night, to to be high jumpers and explosive jumpers, versatile jumpers during their performance in their sport, whether that be basketball or volleyball or anything really that requires them to do so. Now, with that being said, we know that the best way to increase your vertical in volleyball is to jump during volleyball, right? A volleyball jump is going to be different um, in a game or in a practice, when you're tracking a ball and you, and you have your arm retracting back, getting ready to strike the ball, or you're or you're doing a lateral shuffle or a crossover step in order to get to a block, that's going to look a lot different than anything that I can really do in the gym. We can come to a certain level of representativeness of that, but it's hard for me to really get that. So, with that being said, I know that's the highest level of jumping that I can possibly get is in in the um, in the sport itself. However, there are things that we can do in the gym to propel that athlete to higher jump heights. And one of the things that I see in a lot of jump programs is this really high volume, four sets of 20 on, let's just say, squat jumps, four sets of 30 or four sets of 50, right? Go to a, a, a Vertimax and see that type of training. And you just leave the athlete on there for 20 minutes and say, good luck. And part of the problem with that is the reps then proceed to be in the range of something less power-based and less based on explosiveness and rate of force production and more become something in the lines of conditioning, right? And conditioning is is important for athletes to do, but there are ways to condition that don't involve putting so much stress on the joints. If your goal is to increase your touch height, let's just say your goal is to get 10 feet, right? So you may have two attempts to, to touch 10 feet. The the effort or the amount of the amount of um reps that you would put into a high volume situation is not going to transfer. And at some point after rep, let's say eight, 10, 11, 12, you're going to be not jumping at hundred percent, right? You're not going to be having that same intensity of a jump and therefore not necessarily working on the quality that you want to improve explosiveness, rate of force production, things that I mentioned earlier, and actually are going to be becoming more quote unquote fit 
And as I mentioned earlier, there are better ways to do that. Typically for us at Ignite, my general philosophy as well, for the most part, we like to keep the reps lower and the intensity high. For example, if I'm going to be doing like a uh, depth jump, which is you know maybe the king of plyometric ex- exercises, one of the best, it is also very physically, neurologically taxing, right? If I were to have somebody do three sets of 15 of those, one, after rep five, six, seven, it's not going to be at the same level of intensity as rep three, four, five. So what am I really working on? Two, I'm going to expose them to injury. And that is the number one problem. If I could kind of put a bow on this particular topic, it's going to be making sure our athletes are healthy enough to do their thing throughout the year rather than getting a small increase, a sharp increase, and then hurting them. And at the end of the day, it's our job to put the athlete first, not to put some goal ahead of that. All right. So the next myth we are going to cover today is the myth that heavy one rep max squatting increases your vertical. Now, let me first say a caveat. I am okay and I do like heavy squatting. However, when it comes to its transfer, transference excuse me, to actual vertical jumping, it's relatively low, a lot lower than what people see. You see this all the time on the internet, right? People overvaluing one rep max squatting, either one to three reps, as heavy and as slow as possible. And it really doesn't align with the goal of actually increasing your vertical. When you want to talk about increasing your vertical, we mentioned earlier about specificity, and that's the same with the weight room. While we can't necessarily fully mimic jumping in the weight room, we can do exercises that mimic certain aspects of it, right? So the kinematics of jumping, how it looks, the speed or the velocity of jumping, right? Maybe the angle that we produce. When you look at a one rep max squat, I want you to create this picture in your head, one rep max squatting. Let's just say arbitrarily, we'll take an athlete. It's a volleyball athlete, senior volleyball athlete, and he is squatting 300 pounds for one rep max squat. He's 6'4". So let's imagine him going down into the squat to the eccentric motion, pausing at the bottom, and then coming out. All in all, that may take two to three seconds. And I don't know when the last time is that you've seen a vertical jump, but a vertical jump does not take two to three seconds. So right then and there, the velocity of the movement is not going to be in line to what you're actually going to have to produce when it comes to a vertical jump. The contractile speed of the muscles is much lower, much slower. Therefore, again, does not transfer to the speed that you're going to see in the jump. Let's also consider the positioning of a one rep max squat. So we take the positioning of a one rep max squat. Typically, most strength coaches will have their athletes go down to 90 degrees or, or below, right? Get your butt all the way down there. Again, that is not going to look like what a jump looks like. When you look at a vertical jump, they might go into a quarter squat. That largely depends on the type of athlete, how elastic they are, if they're more of a speed jumper or a force jumper, which we'll get into in another episode sometime. But it certainly isn't going to look like a parallel squat. I defy you to show me somebody who jumps like that who is a, who is a very good jumper. They don't exist. Now, with that being said, I do think that there are some benefits to heavy squatting, right? There, there is, um, if you, if you work off of percentages, like a lot of coaches do, you can then program based off of that one rep max. So that could be a potential benefit. There are so there's also some studies that indicate bone density increases from heavy squatting. So that's also a potential benefit. Just the neuromuscular activation that occurs during a, a heavy squat can also be a benefit, but all in all, it is not transferred that much or is not as, not as much as people think. 
One caveat to that potentially is a novice athlete. And in general, novice athletes tend to respond better to more general stimulus. So for example, if I do lunges, squats at any tempo, they're probably going to increase their vertical initially at a sharper slope than say a, a uh, well-trained or a, a, uh, a professional athlete. At that level, the gains are a little bit slower and the stimulus and the training modalities have to be a little bit more specific. All right, so the next myth that we are going to tackle is the myth that if I jump high in practice, I automatically jump high in the game. Now, let me explain this. So oftentimes, let's just say with girls volleyball, the gold standard for hitters, middle blockers, is to try and touch 10 feet. So the assumption is, is that if I can touch 10 feet, I'm automatically a D1 volleyball player and I hit and jump high in the game. The reality is this is not the case. I've discussed this topic with multiple high-level D1 coaches. And in fact, one of them has even tracked this throughout the game and through practice. And he came to the determination that the best practice jumpers are the ones that tested the best, let's say in an isolated situation where you're trying to touch a vertex, were not always the highest jumpers in the game. Now, why is that? Well, let's look at those two different tasks. So let's take task one, which is trying to touch 10 feet or as high as you possibly can maybe even higher than 10 feet, on a vertex. You are coordinating your movement. You're looking at an inanimate object and reaching up and touching as high as you can. It's a relatively simple problem, and it's pretty predetermined, right? No one is moving. Nothing is coming at you at different speeds. You can determine when you go and when you actually jump. Let's take number two, being set as an outside hitter and trying to jump as high as you can to hit the ball around or over a middle blocker we've got totally different information present. One, situation one is, is devoid of much information. And two is full of information. We have the speed of the ball. So we're looking at ball flight information. We also do not know for sure if we're being set or not. So a lot of that is dependent on the, the teammates, right? There's shared affordances that are, that are being um, you know, uncovered during this movement, right? Does my setter set the ball high for me? Does my setter set the ball on time? Did I start my jump uh, at the appropriate time? Did I time my movements right? So one, as you can see, is a lot more complicated than the other one. At this point, I want to again exemplify that it is still important to practice jumping high, right? The higher I jump, the greater action capabilities that I have, which basically is saying that the greater possibility the greater the possibility of my jump if I'm able to jump a little bit higher than, say, the person that touches 9.5. But I do feel like there is an overimportance and an overemphasis as an industry on touching high and simply ignoring what the film tells us. A lot of the times you'll see girls and guys that maybe aren't great in-game, or sorry, aren't great, great practice jumpers, but then when it comes to the game, they dominate. We'll take one more example. Let's look at uh, professional basketball, Draymond Green very famous basketball player. I'm going to guess he does not test pretty well. I don't have his combine NBA combine numbers ahead of me, but he tends to block a lot of shots. Part of that is due to his length. Other part is due to his positioning and timing. Does that mean because he didn't jump 40 inches in a practice setting that he can't block shots? Absolutely not. So all in all, one plus one does not always equal to when it comes to practice, jumping, transferring into the game. That's why it's so important to get those meaningful and rich game reps that are actually similar to the problems you're gonna face on the court. 
All right. So for the last myth we're going to be covering today, I like to call this myth all gas, no brakes. So what does that mean? What I mean is the thought that you only need to work on the ability to produce power and that will make you a better jumper. Now, that being said, it is a very important quality, the ability to be explosive, to put force in the ground or rate of force development as we might call it. But what I often see is overlooked is the opposite, eccentric strength or rate of force absorption or brakes. All great jumpers that play in sports such as basketball and volleyball need to have great brakes. Let me explain that in a little greater detail. So when we're talking about an approach jump, let's just look at that movement. When I'm looking at the penultimate step or the second to last step, my body begins to lower. That's the eccentric part of the movement. As my body begins to lower, if I'm able to decelerate efficiently, I'm then going to be able to jump a little bit higher, right? So it's not just about coming out of the jump. It's, be, it's being able to lower in the jump. The analogy that I like to use is if you were to take a rubber band and put it around your wrist, take the rubber band out two inches, do it very slowly, and then let it go. Now take that same rubber band, take it out that same two inches, but do it fast. See which one has more pop. See which one comes back faster. A jump is a similar way, right? If we go down slow and we're not able to absorb force very efficiently, then we're not going to jump very high. So that's one reason why we do want to work on the on our brakes, on our eccentric strength. Another reason is going to be landing. Every time we jump, inevitably, we have to land. And this is something that, that we probably don't discuss enough as an industry. More injuries or pretty much every injury when it comes to jumping happens when you land, whether it be you land funny, you get bumped, you land on someone's ankle, you get hit, anything like that, right? The ability to land and absorb force efficiently is going to be very crucial for you to stay healthy. So not just that, we also want to be able to absorb force and land efficiently uh, in a number of different ways. So for example, uh, a way we might incorporate this, we might do a depth drop. That's when you fall off a box and try to stop as efficiently as possible. Rather than just landing in the same position every time, we will have our athletes land in varied positions because the reality is the, the coach that's, that's asking you to always land on two feet doesn't understand the fact that that is not going to happen very often. You're very rarely going to land in two feet and it's going to be something that is going to be difficult to train. So rather than pretend that, that we can always do that, we might as well prepare our body for that. That way we can maintain um, our production and stay healthy throughout the year. So those are the myths that I wanted to discuss with you guys today. To kind of wrap this up and, and put a bow on it, I think in general, whether you're a parent listening to this or an athlete, one thing I do want to touch on that's important to me is patience. I think a lot of times athletes are in such a rush to be better, right? To jump high, to increase a vertical. And sometimes that gets them in trouble because then they create shortcuts or they take shortcuts and they work with people who maybe aren't necessarily interested in their long-term development. And that's when injuries occur, right? You know, we have so many cases of, of athletes, you know, developing chronic knee tendonitis, chronic, uh, you know, ankle issues, whatever it may be. And just working through that. And then that should not be something that that should be okay, right? As a coach, it is our responsibility, or it should be, to keep our athletes healthy first, right? That way they can create these long-term gains and improve and be the best over an extended period of time. So I would just encourage anybody listening to this, athletes, parents, coaches, to be patient, 
Nothing happens overnight. It is our duty to keep our athletes healthy so that way they can, again, like I mentioned earlier, they can be the best over an extended period of time. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the show. I would like to do more of these, so please let me know if there's any particular topics you want to dive into. Uh, For more information, we have a lot of blog posts about jumping, and I can link to these as well in the show notes over at igniteperformance.net. That's the the company uh, that I work with and that I co-own along with my two business partners. We have some great information. We have a jump quiz there you can take to learn a little bit more about who you are as an athlete and what type of jumper um, you are. So again, thank you for joining us. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. If you like what you heard, share the episode with a friend, share it on social media, or even better, write us a review. Until next time, we'll see you on the Athlete Blueprint Podcast. Take care.